Welcome to the SAC Shining Lights SLP Schools podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Archibald from Western University. As you know, many speech language pathologists in Canada are employed in schools. Their job is to support children with communication disabilities in accessing the curriculum and achieving their academic and personal potential. It's a challenging job. So many schools, so many students, and not many SLPs. Across the country, SLPs are finding unique solutions to providing the best possible services to the students and school teams with whom they work. In this podcast, our guests describe their innovations in school-based speech-language pathology. Thanks for listening as we shine a light on some brilliant projects. Well, welcome to the podcast today. I'm so excited to have uh, Pat with us today. Pat, would you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Pat Hart Blunden, and I'm a speech-language pathologist, and I guess you could say beginning researcher, although I say that with great humility. And I've spent the last years of my career working with Indigenous children in British Columbia as a non-Indigenous person who has research issues that affect Indigenous people and who works with Indigenous people. I think it is also important for me to not only introduce myself, but also to position myself so that my biases are fully transparent. So if you don't mind, I would also like to position myself. Well, I grew up on the uh, unceded territory of, and this is the first time that I've said this word, and so I hope that I'm pronouncing it correctly, the Wolastuig and the Mi'kmaq peoples, which is today also known as New Brunswick. And I received a mostly Western style of education. I studied speech at Dal. And then I did doctoral studies in interdisciplinary studies at the University of Victoria, which is on the unceded territory of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples. This is my 42nd year of working as an SLP in Canada. And I had actually retired in 2021, but an opportunity came up to provide uh, speech and language support at the Victoria Native Friendship Centre, and I jumped at it. While I've worked over my 42 years in a wide variety of settings and in five provinces, it's my work with Indigenous children that I'd like to focus on today. And that included being an SLP consultant to schools in several very remote communities in northern British Columbia, as well as my current work at the Victoria Native Friendship Centre, where I'm employed as uh, an Indigenous speech language pathologist. And I like that term because I think it reflects the important distinction in the way that I provide SLP support to their Indigenous clients. Very nice. And I'm excited to hear all about that today. So tell a little bit more about uh, the the work that you're going to talk about, the service delivery model, uh, you know, and I know that might not be the right term for the kind of work that you were doing, and the available resources that you were working in, just to set the context of what was available to you at that time. Okay, so I will start by focusing on my experience in northern British Columbia, because that's where I was inspired to do some research about how to improve my practice. But before I go any further, I'm not going to mention the nations that I worked with, the towns I worked in, specific people I worked with, um, because I have met with uh, community members and elders, and some of them 
are concerned about potential negative stereotyping about their way of speaking English, Mm -hmm. uh, because that was um, a lot of the work that I did there. Mm -hmm. And so I won't be being be any more specific than to say in northern British Columbia. Um, But when I was working there in the north, I was a consultant for school age children. Um, It was on a contract type basis. And but I also consulted to preschool settings in the region. And I traveled to this very remote region by plane and car, mostly with a colleague, but sometimes alone. And I've got to say, I really do miss driving through that stunningly beautiful landscape of northern British Columbia and working with those amazing people. It was life changing for me being there. Yeah. Um, and I, I traveled to the region five times throughout the year for one week at a time. And because of the need to drive long distances between communities, I usually had only about three to three and a half days actually in schools to provide, and I'm air quoting now, you can't see me, but <laughs> intervention, because I'm going to talk about more about that later. And I had a very large caseload because not only was I following kids who um, presented with um, communication disability, I love your term, communication mm-hmm. disability to cover everything. Um, as well, though, I was asked, my colleague and I, my colleague worked in a nearby uh, area, we were asked to identify children who were also speaking a dialect mm-hmm. because um, he wanted us to designate those kids as ESD, which stands for English as a Second Dialect. While I'm talking about dialect, I'm probably going to use the word variety because dialect carries with it some negative connotation for some people, never did for me, but for some people um, of a more of a substandard way of speaking. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to use the word variety most of the time. Um, so we were asked to designate kids who are speaking a variety because, you know, there's funding involved. The Ministry of Education in British Columbia created it as a funding category because they recognized that kids who spoke varieties in schools where the method of instruction was in more standard English we're at a disadvantage. There's Mm -hmm. more and more research coming out, mostly from the U.S., among children who speak African-American language, which used to be called African-American vernacular English, Mm -hmm. um, or kids who speak Southern-influenced, Southern English or Spanish-influenced English, or also research in Australia that kids who speak varieties are um, at a disadvantage when acquiring literacy and even mathematics. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And... um, so they created this funding category and, and, and districts were supposed to use the funds to help support those kids learn the more standard version, become bi-dialectal. Mm. So that, because we know that strong language skills are heavily related to school outcomes, which are related to graduation rates, which are related to employment. Mm-hmm. So this was their way of trying to support that need. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
you know, we're, we, our colleague and I were thinking, well, how are we going to assess these kids before we'd even gone up there? Yeah. There, you know, there wasn't very much literature available and there certainly was no list of what are the features of this variety in this community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we had heard, you know, vocabulary might be an issue. Um, from some literature that's pretty outdated, I must say. Mm-hmm. Um, but so we decided we would give every child a Peabody picture of vocabulary test. Mm-hmm. And while I'm on that, I want to say something. Um, I have not looked at this in any systematic way, but my impression is that the results of the kids Peabody picture vocabulary test were distributing themselves along the same normal distribution that you would see in the Peabody Picture Vocabulary Test Manual. Mm. So in this community, we didn't think vocabulary was really much of an issue. Mm -hmm. Um, And that speaks to the importance, I think, of the need to fact check our stereotypes we have about Mm. Indigenous children. Mm Um, and as a really uh, cute little anecdote, um, and I won't mention the item because I'm not supposed to, but there is an item on the Peabody that has to do with the action you take when you put gas in your car. Mm. And I was surprised at these very young children who knew that word. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I got the same rate in urban settings right. of knowledge of that word. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure why that is, but I guess it's because in this community, kids spend a lot of time around that activity Mm -hmm. because they have to travel long distances for groceries, Mm -hmm. to go to medical appointments, to go to hockey tournaments. And so, you know, they may, they may not know all the same words, but they may know some words that the urban kids don't know. Yeah, makes <laughs> yeah. sense. Makes sense. So, so, mm-hmm. and of course, then we had to, you know, we knew that phonology might be an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so we used the dibbles or uh, just a parts parts of the dibbles, the screening assessment to try to get an idea of that. Again, mm-hmm. I don't think phonology in this community was a was a big player, mm. but syntax. We knew syntax, you know, could affect kids with language disorder as well as kids with who speak varieties. So um, we did some assessment of understanding, such as the sentence understanding subtest of the toll to get at that. Mm. But we mostly focused on collecting narrative language samples. Mm. Um, And we picked narrative because, you know, storytelling is a big thing among elementary school, middle school, writing Mm. stories and so on. Uh, So it aligned with the with the demands of school um, and, um, we decided to collect narrative samples because then we, and we use the SALT, the systematic analysis of language. Okay. Yeah. To, um, analyze our samples. And, um, you know, that allowed us to do all kinds of things. We could quickly look at language complexity. We could look at intelligibility ratings so we can measure t- progress over time we could look at kids' ability to express themselves because we could get measurements of mazes. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we could also look to see if there were features present. And we had a way of segmenting so we could get rates of production of these uh, features 
well, what we thought were features mm. because no one had studied this in any systematic way. Can you just talk a little bit about what you mean by features, how you're using that term? Well, in our case, um, in my case, we focused on grammatical differences, mm. mm-hmm. okay. the way um, things are expressed with syntax um, that might be typical of the way the community speaks English. As one mm. example, right. um, a, uh, a child may not use the copula or the auxiliary, mm-hmm. and that would be typical for the whole community. Right. And so, so a feature of that, of that community variety, variety. Mm-hmm. Okay. and one thing I'll just throw in here now that there are a list of features that are said to be typical of a community mm-hmm. variety, but not all people in the community who speak the variety use all the features mm-hmm. and they certainly don't use them at the same rate. Right. So this isn't just all or none. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like language, right? There's a lot of shades of gray. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think that's something that people uh, need to understand that, you know, you can speak a community variety um, and not use all the features that are said to be typical of that community. Variety. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, to collect the language samples, we thought about, oh, how are you going to do this? So in the end, we decided we were going to select short, humorous, dialogue less YouTube videos. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and we did that because we had, we knew that Christine Dollahan and Tom Campbell had used that video to retail procedure to collect uh, narratives from brain injured children. And mm-hmm. it worked well for them. Um, we thought if there were humorous and there were YouTube videos, they could have a wide appeal over many grades. So a kindergartner might enjoy it, and so would a mi- late middle school child enjoy mm-hmm. watching. So we could be more standardized in the way we collected these samples. And also we were thinking, oh gosh, what, what's going to happen if there's a snowstorm and we can't <laughs> get there? So we thought, you know, this, this would work really well because we can just play the video uh, on telepractice and record. Mm-hmm. And uh, it doesn't require a great deal of support on the other end. Mm-hmm. You don't need a storybook. You don't need anything but to set up the whole situation. Right. So that's why, what, you know, why we decided to do that. And we were right. It mm-hmm. was very motivating. The kids really wanted to come and see the videos. Right. So we were really pleased with that decision. Yes. Um, and so to monitor change over time, we collected samples in each May and June of each year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we also did other things like making sure their vision and their hearing was screen. And that was done by a nurse in the community. Mm-hmm, but we had to mm-hmm. sort of follow up, make sure it was all done. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, also, you know, things like practical things, like making sure the audiometer is calibrated. Right. And, yeah. You know, are you going down to such and such? Um, seven hour drive away to get your groceries. Would you mind taking the audiometer and dropping it off there and getting right. somebody else to pick it up? And bring it back? <laughs> right. So you have to be resilient when you're working in these remote communities, yes. but you do figure it out. Yes. Um, and as for intervention in the North, t- to be honest, in those first few years, it was mostly by pullout. 
Um, I'd come in, say, for with articulation, for example. Mm-hmm. I'd work with a child. I'd have an educational assistant observe me. I'd tweak a program, leave it behind, and then come back and retweak it when I would come back. Mm-hmm. And I want to highlight something here. <laughs> there were educational assistants in all the schools that I worked in. Um, and most of them were Indigenous. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, despite their lack of formal training, because I'm pretty sure none of them had any formal training, they were among some of the most effective educational assistants I have ever worked with. Mm. The progress the kids made was amazing. Right. And and I'm not sure why, okay. but I wonder if it's because they were so connected to the community yeah. and everyone knows each other and they were very motivated to support yeah. their kids. Yeah. Right? yeah. Nice. Nice. And, uh, but, um, you know, the whole time that I'm there, oh yeah. And I didn't mention that language was also pull out. Mm-hmm. It was me looking on, working on, um, programs demonstrating for the learning support teacher mm-hmm. she carried it out in my absence but it was all pull out right so I wasn't really happy with that to tell you the truth because at the same time I was also working in something called the provincial inclusion outreach program and I was really getting more and more convinced that pull out was maybe not the best way to do things that would be better if it was, it would be more authentic to be in classrooms in Mm -hmm. the context the kids are communicating in um, for generalization, for transfer, for mentoring the teacher. So she could carry, you know, all of those things. Yeah. And also this whole issue of sorting out who's speaking variety. Right. Versus which kids need my specialized support. Whoa. I was not feeling very confident about it. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. So uh, I think you, you've already foreshadowed some of your major yeah. challenges uh, that, that you were facing. But do you want to sp- speak a little bit more about some of those major challenges that you that that were really beginning to, to make you want to sh- make a shift somehow? Yes, for sure. And I mean, there there are there are there are many challenges and those people who work in com- remote communities will um probably um also have experienced the staff turnover yeah oh my gosh you have to be very patient because you're constantly re-educating new staff about how you can help support kids what what you do um, about variety and so on um and of course there's never enough slpt SLP time for the very great need. Yeah. And then in this particular circumstance, you know, we're gaining trust after years of colonial oppression. We're all, mm-hmm. I hope, much more aware of that issue now. Yeah. But again, it was this whole struggle with the one that really stood out for me, the one that I felt like I wanted to tackle first was assessment, mm-hmm. not over pathologizing kids, sorting out which kids needed my special specialized help. Mm-hmm. which were speaking of variety or which were presenting with language disorder within variety, mm-hmm. which yeah. also exists. Right. Yeah. Um, and just generally improving my practice, mm-hmm. like how to do things in respectful way would be helpful. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So that's a real challenge that, that uh, sorting out whether this is a disorder or not, right. And whether or not, and, uh, you know, and, and making sure we're doing that in a way that fits within the context or the community or the variety as you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. 
So, so what did you do? What, what, what did you embark on as a, as a solution or a, an approach to the project or to the problem? Well, I decided that my solution would be research. Mm-hmm. So I felt like I was in a unique position to do research. Um, I felt, you know, that I had a fair bit of experience under my belt at the time. So then in my, listen to this, everyone, (laughs) in my mid to late fifties, I began the process of applying for a PhD and gathering up a committee. Um, there is a foremost researcher by the name of Walter Wolfram. Mm-hmm. And he is a, um, a scholar in the area of language variation. He's done a lot of work in African-American language, as well as Native American English. And he, a fairly long time ago, wrote a manual for SLPs who were working in Baltimore. And in the manual, he tried to give them tips about how they could determine what were the features of African-American language. But there's a quote in this manual that I find really inspiring. So if you don't mind, I'd like to to say that mm-hmm. for your listeners. Quote, speech and language pathologists seem to have an unprecedented opportunity, if not an incumbent moral obligation to acquire, apply, and disseminate reliable information and valid perspectives about language variation throughout society, the schools, and clinics. And that's been a source of inspiration for me in those dark moments when I think, oh my gosh, why did I tackle this project? (laughs) Anyway, um, yeah, so I just wanted to share that. Yeah, it's a big call. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) but but I think one thing I really hope folks take away um, today is we are well-placed to do community-based research. Mm -hmm. And if we feel we need the guidance of a post-secondary institution, great. I mean, that makes sense. But we we have an opportunity to develop develop relationship. I'll probably talk about that a little later. That's unique. Mm -hmm. And I think we have the skills. It's shocking how much you learn on the job. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it makes research a lot easier than when you first started out. But anyway. yeah. So would you like to hear what my research? I would. So, so what, you know, what, how did, what, how did you frame the the problem you were addressing? Okay. So I tried, I mean, these were big questions in themselves, but mm-hmm. first things first. And I, I must say to me, this is just a, the outer peel of the onion. There's so mm-hmm. much work we need to do. So this is just, in my opinion, a first step. So the research questions that I asked were, are students speaking an identifiable local English variety? Mm-hmm. If so, what are the grammatical features of their variety? And what changes occur in the children's use of features as they progress through the grades in a school where the language of instruction is standard English? So I decided to focus on grammar differences because in this community, uh, they they appeared to me to represent the greatest divergence mm. from more standard Canadian English. And they, the teachers were telling me that these grammar differences were appearing in their writing. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so because of that, I thought uh, they would have the greatest impact on assessment 
as speech pathologists, we can already in our heads imagine <laughs> that this could be a problem, uh, sorting out what's what, as well as on teaching. So that's why I went for studying the grammar differences. Mm-hmm. So my I was able to recruit 15 out of 27 students that I had previously designated as ESD. I was thrilled with that, that over mm-hmm. half of the possible participants agreed to, 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 to participate in the research. And I think that's because I had been a speech path in this community mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they, I had already developed a bit of a relationship with many of the families. Mm-hmm. So, um, so these were children you had already decided based on the, what you had available to that point that they were not disorder, but they were speaking a variety or they had well, they had, they, they used the list of features that we thought were features. Mm, okay. You know, we're talking that this is pretty gray. Yeah, yeah. So there's, yes, which is why I, you know, wanted to study this in a more organized right. way. So it wasn't mm-hmm. a random sample of kids in the school. Mm-hmm. I was taking kids from a pool of kids that I thought had exhibited the features so that I could learn more about this. Right. Um, but specifically not including kids that you thought actually were having uh, a, a difficulty, a, a disorder within the dialect. No, I did include all did. kids. All because, kids. Because if you're in a community and it doesn't matter <laughs> if, yeah. if you've got a language disorder or not, you're going to learn that community variety. Yes. And it, and you know, it muddies things up, but in the, in the end, it helped me because yes. I was able to make some conclusions because I had those kids as a, in the mix. Right. So, um, uh, yeah. So before we go on then, so in that community, yeah. uh, you, in your work, you had identified kids who were speaking the variety. Yeah. But there were kids who you didn't think were. Correct. They were speaking standard English. Yes. Uh, because of whatever other contexts or language models they had around them. Correct. I see. And so there was a pretty small sample size, right? um, which is going to be the case, I think, in any little remote community. And I know when I hear people talk about the fact we need to get more community norms, I am concerned about how are we going to do that? Mm -hmm. Because these are, anyway... Another discussion. Yes. <laughs> um, um, so anyway, so six of the kids in the in the pool of participants were cisgendered females, nine were males. And this is something else I want to highlight. 14 out of 15 identified as First Nations. So uh, yeah. one of them did not. Uh-huh. And again, I th- want folks to appreciate, you don't have to be Indigenous to speak of, uh, an Indigenous variety of English. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're out, on your bikes with your friends and they're all speaking this variety in a certain way, it's the way you're going to speak. Yes. Yeah. So we have to remember that. Right. Um, um, and the ancestral language of most of the children in this community was Dene or Athabascan. Mm-hmm. Um, the kids that I looked at were in kindergarten to grade three at the start of my study. Mm-hmm. And they were all receiving ESD services, mm-hmm. which is I've applied, you know, I've applied a little bit about what I was up to. Right. 
So I'm not going to go into detail about the procedures I use to create those features, except to say that I used inventories, you know, that were created by nearby communities by somebody who put a list of what they thought were the features. I included, you know, in the literature, what other SLPs have had articulated as possible features. I included, you know, um, literature from outside BC. Boy, there's not much published literature on this. I looked at published narratives of adults in the community Mm. as another way of verifying, yeah, if adults are saying this is likely a feature, not an an indicator of language disorder. These were Uh, written documents, uh, documents written by people in the community in dialect. They were transcribed Mm. verbatim. I see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and then I, then I retroactively analyzed those samples I had taken from kindergartners one or two months post entry, mm-hmm. um, and also talked to experts in DNA to see if they thought that this list of features I was developing might've come from the structure of the ancestral language. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the features were further refined through the process of a reliability assessment, both with a uh, person who was familiar with this variety, as well as an SLP who was not familiar with the variety. Mm-hmm. And I ended up with 23, 23 grammatical features. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will attach to this uh, podcast uh, a paper that I published in our journal, mm-hmm. Um so that you can take a look in more detail about the methods that I, I used. Um, the paper's called Grammatical Features of First Nations Kindergartners, Differences, Not Mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I also created a, a brochure that will be attached just called Differences, Not Mistakes, kind of a cheat sheet of the things that I saw in my community. Mm-hmm. And these features affected both words and the way kids formed utterances. Um, one feature, for example, that both experts in Dene thought transferred directly from the ancestor language was the use of the pronoun he when referring to the actions of a little girl. Yeah. And as it turns out, there's no differentiation for gender in third person singular in the ancestral language. Uh-huh. So that's why they thought that was a direct transfer. And if you think about it in English, we don't differentiate gender for third person plural. Mm -hmm. Right. Interesting, right? And other languages in the world don't differentiate differentiate gender. And we're moving toward not doing it in English too, which is terrific. Um, (laughs) Anyway, so, um, and then another feature I wanted to, that was really intriguing to me was this one. When kids who speak a more standard version, in my experience, are telling a story, they might say something like, and then this happened, then this happened, then Mm. this happened. In this community, I was hearing many children and adults say, and here this happened, and here this happened, or then here this happened. And I looked and looked to see if I could find another example of that being used somewhere. Couldn't, and finally found an example of it being used by an Indigenous adult speaker in the Yukon in a published uh, publication. Mm -hmm. Mm. And so I asked my First Nation consultant, I had two First Nations consultants to guide Mm -hmm. me, Mm -hmm. what what they thought about why 
that was the case. And their explanation was, um, well, you know, the land is really important mm. to us. So maybe when we were first learning English, we used this, this type of uh, discourse connector or this type of word rather than then. And um, the other explanation I wonder about is I've read that the hallmark of a really effective storyteller among Dene people is um, the ability to transport the listener to the scene of the event. So was mm. this kind of a literary device mm. <laughs> using here? I don't know. That's somebody yeah. else's dissertation, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Before so, you go on, Pat, can yeah. I just ask you, so when you would look at these or uh, talk to uh, your first nation experts about them and you were looking for, is this, do they feel that, yes, this is part of the variety? Were there times when they said, no, that's, uh, that's not part of the variety? Well, interesting. Um, you ask a question later on about impacts. Mm. And so I will jump ahead here. Mm. When I, I had many community meetings um, to keep people um, in touch with what I was doing. I did not want anybody blindsided. So I would present these to see, yeah, do you think this is typical? And so I would get lots of feedback at these meetings. But I did make a phone call to an elderly person in the community once and was explaining what I was doing. And they were taken a little bit aback because they didn't think they were speaking English any differently. Yeah. Um, and that's pretty typical of your own accent or your own variety mm -hmm. you don't hear yeah. your own <laughs> so um but you know i'm jumping ahead here a little bit but um I, I was really thrilled i was in the staff here one day and one of the prominent elders came up to me and said that after i had spoken to their group that they are now feeling proud that they speak air quotes name of their nation mm. english yeah, yeah. So that yeah. was re that's so rewarding. A kind of ownership of that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, pride, and, pro and pride. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No. 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 Yeah. That's really. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Go ahead. I, I, I was. I was going to just. So, were there times when the this did not seem? You know, the, when they did say, "Now that's not part of our variety." The only other one that I can think of where that was particularly questioned was undifferentiated pronoun case mm, mm, mm. because I did not see any examples of it being used by adult speakers in the community, mm -hmm. but I included in my inventory because it had been identified as a feature by um, SLPs on Vancouver Island. Mm -hmm. Undifferentiated pronoun use. Pronoun like her done, her did that I rather see. than she did that. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it was also in an inventory that had been created by Craig and Washington. I believe I'm getting that, that correct. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, typical of African-American language. Mm -hmm. So this, okay. this brings up a whole other issue. Um, are, is this a developmental feature right. of this variety mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. they maybe acquire the differentiation of pronoun case later? And yeah. that's typical for the community. It's the way they develop their variety. Yeah. 
So yeah. that adds a whole other layer of complication to this whole <laughs> idea. Yeah. Yeah. yeah anyway. Yeah. yeah. So that would be the one where they'd say, they'd said, mm, we don't do that because they didn't. Uh-huh. It's only the kids that did that. And they did it with such frequency in the early grades that I included it. And that's uh-huh. another characteristic of variety. You, you might do something that's typical of standard English of wherever you are but you do so with greater frequency than would be expected. So I that see. also can make, that can be a, some, a feature that can arrive in an inventory because mm-hmm. frequency of use. Yeah. All right. So have we got a sense you, you, you developed you uh, as a, as a, as a piece, a step towards answering your question, you developed an inventory of the features of the language. That's right. And yeah. so that my next problem was this. I saw, and it was a real aha moment, that the four most frequently occurring features are also indicators of language disorder. Right. So I made, aha, no wonder. Like, this is the beauty of doing research. You see Mm -hmm. the patterns more clearly than you can just see, than you can see on the day-to-day. At least Mm -hmm. I can. Yeah. And um, so I thought, okay. But, you know, in the meantime, I know that these most of these features are being used by adults. So I think that in many cases, they could be features of language disorder. But in most cases, they're probably features of variety. Yes. And so I said, okay. So my proof was I divided my kids into two groups. One group had no history of ever requiring speech and language support or special education support Mm -hmm. are my typically developing kids. And then I had separated those from the kids who weren't typically developing. Mm -hmm. And I saw that typically developing kids use the features too. And there was no significant difference between the two groups in terms of the frequency of use of variety or the number of different features they used. However, there was an effect size. (laughs) So what for me as a clinician, I took away from that was, okay, after that, after I figured that out, I thought to myself, okay, if a child comes in here in kindergarten using features at high rates Mm -hmm. and lots of features, I am going to keep an eye on that kid because I happen to know that that that's like a a warning sign for me that this child might need my specialized help mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because of that work that I did. So okay. that, that was a helpful takeaway. Mm-hmm. So features at high rates uh, and was, might be a sign yes. of the struggle of the language development. Maybe. Yes. Maybe. Yeah. And so, you know, just do a dynamic assessment approach, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, intervene, look and see if the children are acquiring what you're trying to teach them. And if they're not, then we need to do something more deliberate. Yes. That's great. That's the, that was my way of looking at it. For sure. For sure. So then you took that and you know, how, you know, we're coming to well, that well, impact well, question. What did you well, do with it? What was the impact there? Can I diverge just yes. a bit? Mm-hmm. Because I didn't, this is one thing I really want to talk about, which is I also looked at the features that they progress through the grades ah. very quickly. This mm-hmm. was really cool. Um, when kids came into kindergarten, they used features at high rates and they started to decline the rate at which they use features, reaching their lowest levels about in grade four. But 
as they started to approach their teenage years, heading into middle school, they started to use features at high rates again, higher rates again. It was a a beautiful curvilinear uh, thing going Mm -hmm. on. And it also aligned with what people were finding among African-American language speakers. Yes. So the explanation might be sociolinguistic. Mm-hmm. When kids come in to school, um, they start to reduce their use of features as they identify with the way their teachers are speaking English, because most of them are not Indigenous. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of them speak a more standard variety. And the way they see um, English being written in their readers, and they start to reduce their frequency of use at school. I can only say what's happening at school with right. me. Yes. And <laughs> and then um, as they are approaching their teenage years and forming their identity, they begin to want to speak like they're hearing people in the community speak, while mm-hmm. the way their families speak, and they start to use those features again. Mm-hmm. And it's really important that we know that because we yes. have to be careful about the language we use. This is yes. a healthy process. Yes. Yeah, yes, right? Yes, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Very cool. So yeah. thanks for telling us about that. Let's come uh, to, to impacts. Okay. Um, well, I did talk a bit about some of the the differences I heard from community members. Right. Um, and the, the, the pride. And I also heard, you know, mostly younger members say to me things like relief. Because they mm-hmm. always wondered, why did they struggle so much in English and socials? And it gave them something to, oh, okay, well, I had to work a little harder here. I had right. to learn to code switch. Yes. Um, and, of course, teachers uh, became more aware of the language they used mm-hmm. when instructing, you know, yeah. especially when do, doing written feedback about the writing. Yeah. Um, so I was really pleased about that. Yeah. Um, um and, you know, I've had lots of chance to speak to SLPs and teachers, linguists, and psychologists. Um, and what the reception has been has been so interesting to me and also rewarding when I see the paradigm shift happening. Mm. So I'll get, when I'm talking about the features and how they may have come from the ancestral language, I'll get, oh, isn't that cool? And then I'll hear, oh, when I know they're starting to think about their own practice and then I'll hear kind of, uh Oh, you know, when I know they're starting to think about, Oh my gosh, how many kids did I over pathologize on the formulated sentences subtest of the self? Because I just didn't know that this was typical of the community English. Yeah. So that's been great. And then it's impacted me in my, it impacted me right away in my assessment. Mm. Um, I don't do a lot of standardized tests. I do some, Mm -hmm. and if I do do them, I put statements in them, like things like, um, this may be an underestimate of your child's actual ability Mm -hmm. because I'm Mm -hmm. using a test that was standardized on somebody else. Mm -hmm. Um, there was an indigenous person and I can't remember her name. I'd have to look it up, but I, that I heard at one of our speech and hearing BC conferences, actually. And she also does standardized testing, but what she does, she places in the context of how she, how these tests may predict how their child will do in a school, Mm -hmm. which is 
with a method of instruction is more standard English and it's a Western styled. And I like that approach too. And I might start to use that. Mm -hmm. But as I implied, I am doing a more dynamic assessment kind of uh, thinking. I know I haven't done any formal dynamic assessment tests, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. I have, I take that as the process I use when I'm trying to decide who needs extra help. Um, and, um, oh, love the idea of using non-linguistically biased assessment tools like nonsense syllables mm. or token tests. I actually used the revised token test mm-hmm. years ago. Yeah. Um, and I like this idea of trying to get a language processing as opposed yeah. to language knowledge. And I yeah. see you've done some work in that area. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yay, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and it affected my intervention. I moved toward more evidence-based tier three supports in mm. classroom um, for kids who are kindergarten to grade um, three, young, the young ones. Mm. I would go into the classrooms and demonstrate recasting. Mm-hmm. And like I would have the kids in a circle on the mat and I would start a story. I always try to make it funny because they love making funny things. Yeah. And so I might start with something like one day a moose walked into the store and then every child would take their turn adding to the story. And that allowed me to recast the child's sentences so that the teacher could watch and do that all day. Yeah. This whole idea of providing a model without correction mm-hmm. is really mm-hmm. important to me because we know that, you know, if you correct kids, they may shut down. Yes. And this is devastating in classrooms that rely on dialogic learning, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? So, yeah. So, and that, so the older kids, I read about contrast of analysis and, um, a linguist did it with Cypriot Greek speakers because they have to go to school in standard Greek. So they were having the same issue and, all that means is you point out the points of contrast to the kids. So I'd go into a classroom and I'd call it a linguistics lesson. Right. right. <laughs> and all oh, the linguists, please forgive me. <laughs> and uh, so I call a linguistics lesson and I would um, talk about varieties of English spoken all around the world. And I had a wheel and I, mm. on every spoke of the wheel, I just wrote a different variety. So I had their community variety on one spoke and I had uh, standard Canadian English on a different spoke mm-hmm. and I had rap on another spoke mm-hmm. and I had Newfoundland English because they right. brag about their yes, varieties course, yeah, right yeah, yeah. and so on and um, then I go to the teacher and I'd say are there a couple of features that are standing out to you that are turning up in the children's writing and so mm-hmm. they give me a couple and then we just I just get on the board and wrote how do we say that here in town? How do we, how do you think we would say it if we were writing a test mm. or, or we're going to be at a job interview, like mm-hmm. for the high school students. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was amazing how some of the younger ones had no idea that you could say, I saw that mm. instead of, I seen that because right. it just wasn't anything that they had heard. It's just a code they hadn't heard. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, so that's, and then 
um, I got this tip from May Bernhardt, Barbara May Bernhardt. I uh, and my my reading about dialect readers being used with African American language speaking kids I had the kids write stories and they'd have one character would speak in their way of speaking English mm. and the other character would speak uh, a more formal English mm. as a, mm. another way to point out the differences. Yes, yes. And yeah, so that's how I changed my practice. And for kids that, you know, were not progressing at that tier three level, then I would uh, get a group of kids together and the learning support teacher would do some language program like talking tables mm. or mm. power speak is another program similar created mm. in Campbell river actually on the Island. Yeah. And, um, and then I would just give them some feedback tweak about how you might modify that to address variety and so on. Yeah. Um, and the other impact on me was that inspired me to continue my journey with improving my practice. So I took a job at the Victoria Native Friendship Center. Oh, wow. Um, I know I'm talking on and on, but there's some things I've learned there that I'd love to pass on to your listeners. The idea of providing support rather than intervention. Mm. This was first um, applied to me by my the Indigenous supervisor on my committee. That is the word they use at this friendship center. Because, and I looked up the definition. Intervention, the act of interfering with the outcome or course, especially of a condition or process. Mm. So that to me implies it's the speech pathologist manipulating and in, okay. yeah. Mm -hmm. Whereas I looked up support and you get definitions like give assistance, hold up. Yes. So to me, that more accurately reflects, I am holding up the parents and the community. Um, they're my clients to teach these children. I'm holding up. I love that. You know, yes. and my, and my clinical program director says language matters. So yes. I use that word support now at the friendship center. They use traditional ways to communicate with their families, but guess what? They also use texts, text messages, Facebook, yes. whatever works for the family. Yes. And Similarly, we actually provide support in the context that works for the family. So mm -hmm. that's playground, school, home, at the center, when the family is able and ready. Yeah. Because we know that folks are dealing with lots of stuff and speech and language may just be something they just can't manage at that moment. Right. So we try to be flexible to allow for some flexibility of being able to provide that support. Pat, and, we're going to, we're going to start oh, to wrap up. Okay. Um, I've got a, uh, we're going to allow just a couple more questions. Is there something that you want to talk a little bit more about those next challenges? Just, just a, a brief description of, of yeah. what you've got in the, in the, in the cooker there. I will be very brief. Um, the, the indigenous supervisor on my committee suggested that I share what I did to actually complete this research because it is tricky to do. And, mm -hmm. um, and I felt really awkward about that. I thought, oh, I can't, <laughs> I can't do that. So what I, what I did is I've partnered with one of my uh, first nations consultants and we're writing a paper. I mean, it's coming along slowly, but it's coming yes. <laughs> and right now that the, the, the title is settler research with indigenous school age children's suggestions for success and he, of course, that title may change, but he identified six principles 
that he thinks that you would need to follow. And I think they're the same principles SLP should follow when they're working in community. Right. Can you briefly um, give those to us? Yes, or, yes. I will really yeah. quickly. Um, <laughs> inclusiveness. Mm-hmm. Many Indigenous communities need to feel included. Um, so that's getting permissions. And for mm-hmm. SLP, I think that means getting permissions about the technique you're going to use. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Make sure it jives with their cultural value, their yeah. worldview. Um, empowerment. Indigenous people need to feel empowered after years of colonial disempowerment. And for me, I had a meeting to ask the community if I could release the name, um, because I was feeling like I couldn't cite my sources to be critically evaluated. I couldn't credit people that helped me. And they said, no, no, we, we don't want you to do that. We're too afraid. And I talked a bit about that too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Autonomy, the freedom to choose. Well, there's an example of the freedom to choose. Yeah. And I think an SLP might ask the family to choose where to do the speech therapy mm-hmm. if they were able or, um, you know, what technique or who, who mm-hmm. would, would they like the EA, who they know, you, mm-hmm. you know, give some power back to them. Mm-hmm. Relationships, the importance of developing relationships. The VNFC does this beautifully. It is expected as part of my work to serve soup to the community, to give out bus tickets to people so they can get into therapy, to participate in community events. Tomorrow I'm working, I'm going to march with the women um, for missing and endured and, you know, murdered indigenous women, Mm -hmm. Um, give out school supplies, uh, refer to all the other supports that are at the center. Mm -hmm. Um, and beware your bias. Well, I touched on that when I positioned myself. And the last one is reciprocity. Um, If you take, be prepared to give back. And it was explained to me that people in this community are a bit suspicious of researchers Mm -hmm. because they wonder, they're worried that they're, the researchers just feathering their own cap, developing Mm -hmm. their own CV. Mm -hmm. And, um, But see, what I want to say is that as speech pathologists, we've already given back. We're supporting the community. So it's, it's easier for us to develop a relationship. We're giving back and getting, gaining trust. Yes. Pat, it's making me just think importantly, but a a question I I maybe should have asked earlier, you've developed this, this feature list and we can look at your articles um, and even look at that feature list. Where can we go with that? You know, is it that one community or are other listeners who are working in other communities? Should they be informed by that list? What do you think? What do I think? I'm so glad you asked that question. I get asked (laughs) that question a lot. So as it turns out, there's a huge overlap among people from pretty disparate communities and of different origins of features. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, features develop by the structure of the ancestral language, which leaks into English. But there are other processes in place, like phonological reduction, grammatical simplification, principles of second language learning. So what happens is it ends up, there's a lot of overlap between the features that are used. So what I say to folks is use this as a guideline, knowing that there will be differences in your community, but being aware that there could be a lot of overlap. Yes. 
So, yeah. So, and I, I'm hoping people will start to, you know, in collect this information and then we can start to have a pool of regional variations, yeah. but there will always be specific things that are used in specific communities. Yeah. Pat, I've really enjoyed t- uh, talking to you just before we finish up, then tell me about what, what's one of your favorite outside of work activities. I can say that very simply. It's growing stronger as I grow older by rowing on Elk Lake, where those Olympians come from, (laughs) not me. (laughs) And um, so that I can get down and play with my brand new granddaughter. I love being a grandmother. Ah, Congratulations on that. That sounds lovely. And and rowing sounds like a a, a really great activity. uh, It's it's wonderful. Yeah. And thank you, Lisa for allowing me this opportunity and thank you for all the work that you do. Well, thanks. It's been lovely to talk to you, Pat. Thanks for being a guest on the podcast. Great. Thanks. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the SAC Shining Lights SLP Schools podcast. You can find all podcasts, transcripts, and links to the episode resources on the SAC website. That's at sac-oac.ca. If you'd like to be a guest on the podcast or you'd like to suggest a guest, please email the host, Lisa Archibald, at larchiba at uwo.ca. That's L-A-R-C-H-I-B-A at uwo.ca. You can listen to our podcast on all of the major podcast servers. If you liked this episode, be sure to give it a thumbs up on your platform and share it through your social media and other channels.